In this episode of the BFR Better for Results podcast, we sit down and talk with Jeremy Lenicky, Associate Professor at Ole Miss, who is a world-renowned expert in exercise physiology and blood flow restriction training. His research focuses on understanding the differences between muscle size and muscle strength and the impact of blood flow restriction training on relevant musculoskeletal adaptations and so much more. Our conversation dives deep into how much training volume we actually need in order to maximize muscle adaptations, along with deconstructing how muscle size and muscle strength could be different adaptation processes. In addition, we spent some time diving into blood flow restriction training and getting nerdy on its application. I hope you enjoy the episode. What's up, what's up, what's up, what's up, what's up, everyone? This is Nicholas Rolnick, the Human Performance Mechanic, coming at you with the BFR Better for Results podcast. And today I am extremely excited to be talking with Dr. Jeremy Lenicky of Ole Miss. He is somebody who, honestly, it almost started my journey in BFR, blood flow restriction, but has done so much work in other areas in terms of helping us improve our understanding of exercise. So in the spirit of BFR being better for results, we're of course gonna talk about blood flow restriction, but we're also gonna talk about the debate on volume and strength training. How much do we actually need in order to elicit positive benefit? I think there is significant barriers that exist for people to exercise and being able to kind of dispel some of those myths to get people moving is something that really drives me and uh, helps me fulfill my mission of getting people back to the activities that they love as quickly as possible. So with that, welcome Dr. Lenicky. Thank you so much for volunteering your time. If you wanna tell the audience briefly um, who you are, what drives you, and then we'll kind of get started. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, I'm currently at Ole Miss. I guess this is year 10 that I've been here, so I've been here a long time. Uh, I started out um, in athletics when I was younger, got involved with exercise through wrestling, uh, transitioned to kind of bodybuilding, powerlifting, which is how I kind of fell into this, some of the early stuff on blood flow restriction. Um, did my undergrad and master's at Southeast Missouri State University, uh, did an internship doing some animal research at the University of Illinois with Dr. Kim Huey, um, and then went to the prestigious University of Oklahoma, uh, Boomer Sooner for my PhD. And then I'm, like I said, I've been here for 10 years, uh, very muscle centric, resistance training centric focused in our lab. Uh, we do a lot of blood flow restrictions, not the only thing we do but is a big focus. And then we go wherever kind of the data uh, takes us. So how did you get interested in muscle physiology? Yeah, I, as I said, I was, I was a wrestler for most of my life uh, from the age of five, all the way to, I guess, through high school. Um, you know, and I, I was always, I, I, I was very, an, I was an average wrestler. Um, I was a very frustrating wrestler because I would beat people I shouldn't beat and then lose to people I shouldn't lose to. The worst, um, the worst kind. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, well, my, my co- I, I started off wrestling 112 and then I finished at 215. So, what? Yeah. So basically, <laughs> you know, my coach, I always, I always had pretty good technique. Uh, my coaches were always like, if you could just get into the gym and start training, um, you know, and and build up a little bit as you're developing, that would be, you would set yourself up and you'd be a better wrestler. Um, I honestly, I hated lifting weights. I hated training. And I would always tell my coaches, I'm like, coach, I don't need to do any of that. I'm already too strong, you know? Uh, but then I guess after my sophomore year or junior, or I guess in my junior year, um, I started uh, lifting weights. Um, and one of my buddies at the time was like, that was when you know flex magazine and muscular development were still a thing uh they might still be a thing but they were really a thing at that point um and he was kind of into the bodybuilding world so i just started kind of going to the gym to train with him and kind of got into that uh so i kind of transitioned to trying to figure out how do i get as big as possible and that led me to bodybuilding.com uh message boards back in the day uh it's where i met lane norton and kind of that whole community went to illinois where he was at the time uh, but then just kind of really got into how do I get as big as possible and then kind of shifted towards keeping that, but also how do I get strong? Um, and then added blood flow restriction into that mix as well. So it started off with, uh, trying to get a little bit better for wrestling. Um, and then just kind of took it one step at a time and here I am. So where, where I guess you know, I'm, I'm assuming you probably have a similar story as to how you found out about blood flow restriction, but you mentioned it. How did that kind of come on your radar? Yeah. So towards the end of my undergrad, so this is probably 2006, 2007, around 2007, I, I started really trying to get into reading the research. Um, just any research, not blood flow restriction, just trying to get a better understanding of things. I started taking school much more serious at this time um, because I, originally I wanted to work with athletes and I thought, you know, that's kind of what I want to do. And then I did a, I did a practicum where I was doing that. I was working with a guy named Ryan Kleppel, good friend of mine to this day. Um, and, you know, following him along, watching kind of what he was doing. And I was like, you know, this isn't this isn't for me. Um, it took me a while to become honest with myself, but once I was, I was like, this is, I I'm not interested in this. Um, and we got to talking one day and I remember saying something about research. I go, would you need like a, how do you go do something like research? He's like, well, you'll need a PhD for that. I'm like, well, I, I guess I'll just do that. Um, so I was just kind of reading kind of the literature and one of the papers I read was on blood flow restriction. So, uh, but you know, being an undergrad, I'm like, I must just not be understanding what I'm reading. This doesn't make any sense that you would cut off blood flow and that something good would happen. Uh, so I went to Illinois for my internship in the spring of 2008. Um, and up there in the gym that I was training at, uh, Lane Norton, a couple other guys, Chris Foz, they were kind of talking about this blood flow restriction thing. Um, and they were actually using some knee wraps and things like that at the time. And I'm like, man, I guess I was reading that correctly. Uh, so then I just started reading everything that I could about it. Um, and then part of part of my internship was having to do like a project. Uh, so I did it on blood flow restriction, just kind of like put a presentation together. 
And my my undergraduate mentor was like, you know, I think you might be on to something with this blood flow restriction thing, this practical. You should you should maybe look into this a little bit more. You should write a paper. And I'm like, okay. And then on the way home, I'm driving. I'm like, what the hell does that mean? Write a paper. <laughs> I write a paper. Um, and that was the one that we wrote for the Strength and Conditioning Journal. So that's kind of how I came across it. If, just that the, reading the broadly. The practical BFR one? Yep. That was, yeah, that was the, that was the paper that I came across. And I was just like, yeah, like this kind of could make sense. And then I kind of like disregarded it in my like little travels. And then me being a bodybuilder and like you said, anything for just increasing muscle size, I was like, okay, like this eh, might, might be something and put it away. And then when I was competing in bodybuilding, I was getting my masters and I saw somebody with wraps around their arms, their arm was like purple. And I was just like, what, what is that? And then it's like, it's occlusion training. And I was like, all right, well, what does that do? He goes, well, you get a sick pump and then you get bigger muscles. And that was sold. Yeah. And then I tried to do it for like two weeks. It was agony. And it was also awful to set up, like really difficult in the upper body. And then I threw it away basically. And then I picked it up in PT school, like in my end of my first year, middle of my second or beginning of my second. And then I was like, wow, like with a, with a better understanding of exercise, I was like this, there's something here. I don't necessarily know exactly <laughs> what, right. what, what's going on or what it is, but it, it does kind of make sense. And then we started to see this literature that's pouring out on load, you know, the absolute load doesn't necessarily, or the relative load doesn't necessarily matter as long as you're reaching some level of fatigue. And then all of a sudden, you know, that it started to, to click at least, at least for me. Um, did you encounter in your, um, in your travels, in your experience, trolls on with, with your interest in BFR and trolling? Oh yeah. <clears throat> yeah. A lot, especially early on when I was presenting at some of the, the camps, uh, for Lane Norton, he used to do these VIP camps back in the day. Um, and when, you know, you would promote that, that, oh, I'm going to be talking about blood flow restriction training. Like the comments that I would receive would be, you know, uh, pretty crazy, you know, and, you know, I, I get being skeptical. I, I think that that's an important quality. Uh, but yeah, lots of trolls, lots of, well, you know, as you might imagine, uh, where could I put this to make something else bigger? Or where can I put it around my neck to make my brain bigger? It's like <laughs> the perennial fifth cuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. I, I think, I guess what in your experience, what do you think that those trolling you, is that ignorance? Is that just, you know, a, a kind of, um, you know, appeal to what, what we currently know? Is there a lack of like intellectual curiosity? Like, what do you attribute those trolls to? Because I felt that too, especially in the beginning in 2016, 2017, posting on Instagram, the amount of trolls that I would get just by posting research articles and being like, Hey, this is what this article said. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think, I think it's several things. I think one, you get people who just like to piss other people off. I think they, they, that's their thing, which is, 
you know, it is what it is. Uh, I think you got other people who who just assume that everybody else is stupid. Um, so it's like this is idiotic. Or uh, I think I think the other part of that that's mixed into this is there's a lot of bizarre things in our field. So I think a lot of times people are kind of just really sensitive to that and being like, okay, now what are you guys doing now? You're you're cutting off blood flow. You're training. This is. Can you just lift weights? And just do the the basic principles. So I, I kind of get that angle a little bit, where you're like, "Wait, what are you doing?" So I think it's a mixture of uh, of a lot of things. Um, and I think you have some people who just like to, you know, poke the bear. Um, so you mentioned bizarre things in our field. Let's let's just hit on a couple of the bizarre things that um, that we we observe in in the field of exercise science. Well, yeah, I think you have all sorts of things where you have people doing, you know, maybe they're um, walking backwards on a treadmill or they're um, some sort of diet or they're taking some sort of supplement or they're taking, I don't know, a, a variety of things. Where Full body it, electrical suits. Yeah. So, or like, you know, the wearing, you know... Um, Wearing a mask, making it very hard to breathe, uh, convincing yourself that you're training at altitude. Um, so there, there, again, there might be reasons why you might want to do that. There could be specific reasons, but uh, mimicking altitude, I don't think is one of them. Uh, that that's, I mean, you, you do look pretty awesome. I, I must admit, um, I think it looks pretty, pretty, <laughs> pretty intense when you're training, look like Bane lifting weights. Um, but yeah, I think there's exerciser. Yeah. So lots of things. Yeah. Uh, I think I think what what reading your work and I I always appreciate when you've gone on other podcasts and your humbleness and your skepticism is something to be admired for people that uh, are in the position that you're in. So kudos to you. I think having a healthy dose of skepticism is always uh, is always a good thing. And with that being said, I kind of want to transition to, um, before we return back to some BFR and, and getting nerdy there, is volume and strength training. And how much do we really need to do? Because in our society, at least in the United States, 70% of individuals are overweight or obese. And I was actually literally this morning, I was going, I was in a conversation with a client and I was talking about the amount of people that actually meet the physical activity guidelines. And it was something like 46% of America meets no aerobic or resistance training guidelines whatsoever. And then a subset, it's almost like nine... If I'm remembering it correctly, it's like nine percent don't like or nine percent meet resistance training guidelines. And I think from my understanding of the state of fitness is that there is so much tribalism that happens where you have people that are very high volume, so you have to do a lot of of exercise in order to maximize muscle growth. And then you have the very ultra low volume camp 
where you want to do the minimum effect, you know, the what we call the minimum effective dose. So I, I guess based on your interests, what can we learn about volume and secondarily the relationship between muscle size, so hypertrophy, and muscle strength? Sure. Yeah, I think many, many roads lead to growth. Um, I think there are much fewer that lead to strength, right? So I think that um, one of the things that you said is kind of this tribalism. So, you know, I, I think whatever you need to tell yourself to stay motivated to train for as long as you can, you know, roll with that. I think your concern and my concern is when you start telling people this is the way, you know, not a way. So I think that what is the relationship between volume and growth? I think that that's a tricky one. Um, I think if we think about sets to failure, obviously one set to failure is better than no sets, right? So is two better than one? Probably. Uh, is the, anything beyond three or four sets, it probably becomes very, very, very difficult to detect, right? And then you have to think about, well, what are the exercises that we're doing? Is it a single joint? Is it like a bicep curl, knee extension? Is it a squat? Are those different? Probably. Um, because you have, a, once you start, you know, becoming like a, a barbell squat, there's a lot more muscles involved. Uh, so which one is actually failing versus uh, like a leg extension? So yeah, I, I agree that some degree of volume is important for muscle growth. Um, I think that you have to activate the fibers for a sufficient duration of time. The next question is, what is sufficient duration of time? I don't know. You know, theoretically, if you were to, if you do an MDC, so you contract as hard as you can, theoretically, you've activated a large portion of your muscle, but that does not typically stimulate large amounts of growth. So that tells you that activating the fibers is in and of itself not enough. Like there needs to be a duration component. Now, how long does that need to be? I don't think extremely long. Um, I always like to do three to four sets to failure or close to failure is probably good enough. Um, if you need to do more uh, because you mentally need that to stay motivated, then by all means do that. Um, on the At the same time, I think you have people who are going, well, um, for strength, you also need volume or you need, or you have people who are just chasing volume uh, as a proxy for growth or a proxy for adaptation. Uh, and I think that that's kind of problematic. And I think you mentioned a paper uh, by Dr. Buckner that I, I've not read that, but I think I'm familiar generally with the idea of uh, because you're increasing volume over time, doesn't mean that that will then result in better growth, right? Something's happening because you're able to do more volume, but that doesn't necessarily equate to growth, right? Because there are many times where you can do more volume, but growth doesn't occur. Uh, so I think I think that there's a lot of people doing a lot of wasted sets. Uh, wasted sets meaning it's not doing anything for adaptation. Uh, but again, I'm on board with people because the points that you said earlier, you know, there are some people who I know, and if you would have told me this back in the day too, I, would, I was doing way too much exercise for adaptation, but I, I didn't care, right? I, I don't care. Like, I'm just in here. I, I want to train as hard as I can today. I don't care that the last six sets I did aren't really contributing to growth. It wasn't, I, I wanted to feel really just exhausted when I left. 
So you could argue that that wasn't the most optimal way, but it kept me motivated to train for a long time. So I think you have to have a little bit of uh, nuance in these discussions. Um, now, with respect to strength, I think strength comes from lifting heavy weights. And <clears throat> somehow this has become controversial. And, and I don't even know how. I, I really don't. Um, I'm not saying that lifting light weights, even to failure, I'm not saying that th that doesn't stimulate strength in some in some studies. Um, but it doesn't stimulate the same amount of strength as lifting heavy weights. It just doesn't. And the reason why people have such a hard time with this is because they think that a change in size must equate to a change in strength. It might, not only it, it has to, that's what some people's view are. So the fact is, is that it doesn't have to do anything. Uh, we know that a variety of loads stimulate growth, but high loads are going to optimize strength. Um, and, and the data to me seems extremely clear on that. Uh, even with blood flow restriction, you know, we just finished a study last year where, uh, low intensity exercise didn't really even change relative to a non-exercise control. When you added BFR, it did. When you were doing max contractions, it was the highest, right? So it, to me, that makes complete sense though, uh, that lifting heavy weights is going to be better for strength uh, because it's more of a performance-like task. Yeah, I think what we need to do in an effort to demystify is we need to go and we need to talk about the different factors that could possibly contribute to an increase in strength. We first though, before we even do that, need to define strength. So what specifically is strength in your operating definition of the word? Yeah, my operating is just what people think of when they think of strength, right? So the most that you can lift one time, all right? And um, I think that that's a traditional definition of strength. So I, I think people have changed it now to where, to try to try and mold this story a little bit, where it's like, well, strength is more like, what I'm thinking about strength is like, you know, like a 30 RM. Nobody ever thinks of strength like that, no one. So when I think of strength, I'm talking about maximal strength you can do one time, which is how most people on the planet define strength. So if I, I'm on board, okay? If I would say strength, is your maximal expression of force agree or disagree in a particular movement in a particular type of contraction yeah i think that makes sense okay so the the thing with i guess that there's some disconnect is people are not really aware of the nuances associated with the specificity of strength versus the relative non-specificity of muscle growth, AKA hypertrophy. Yeah. So I think that it's important when we start to break down the topic that we talk about the different ways in which strength or the expression of force is different in terms of the adaptation profile of you know, muscle growth. So could you talk about a couple of the different, like the differences between those types of adaptations? Yeah. So, um, and I, I think, you know, 
what you said makes a lot of sense too, where it, it's like, because it, it really hinders the conversation on both sides. Because when you have people coming out like me and you saying, hey, you know, you can, there's a lot of different ways to make a muscle grow, right? You can do low loads, you can do high loads, you can do some aerobic exercise, even though it's not going to be to the same extent. Um, but all of those are going to lead to growth. And, and people's first thought is, well, I know that lifting heavy weights produces way better strength than lifting low loads. So that can't possibly be true, right? But as you're saying that they are, they are different things. So when we think about muscle growth, we're thinking about, you know, adding protein, right? So there's more protein there, more, you know, theoretically, uh, we would think of it probably being contractile. Now, why that doesn't contribute to force is a, is a whole nother discussion. Uh, but we think about adding more protein than was there before. So um, the fact that you can get there many different ways tells you, as you said, it's a nonspecific kind of adaptation. Um, and you can get it with aerobic exercise, but not usually to the same level as you would with uh, resistance exercise, but it can happen. Um, whereas strength um, has that huge specificity component, um, which would probably maybe be some neurological I think that makes sense to say neurological, but then I would have to be assuming that I know exactly why people get stronger. I don't know that. Um, I think the neural mechanism makes a lot of sense. Uh, but the the strength, if we look at uh, kind of all the parameters that happen when someone gets stronger. So if high loads are better than low loads, well, then what does that tell us? That there's a specificity component, right? And I think that's one of the things that most people agree on. Um, now the question is what explains that specificity component? Probably neurological, uh, but I mean, could be some other factors, I suppose. So one of the things you kind of touched upon, like I, I think of in the neurological, I think we, the, the most, the most relevant type of adaptation following high intensity strength training and by high intensity, I just mean using heavy loads, not necessarily, um, not necessarily like high intensity in some people just means training to, to volitional fatigue. Sure. I'm specifically talking about high, high load training <laughs> is that there is this difference in muscle fiber recruitment patterns. And so it, when we have that difference, that also creates this amount of specificity in the task correct so if we if we think that then naturally there's going to be a divergence in in the expression of that force because we're now training to the task and i think you have really um your work on training the for the task or the 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 idea that you know, we kind of obfuscate the magnitude of strength differences when we retest one rep maxes in the middle of the investigation to almost like recalibrate loads. So I guess one of the ways in which you're referring to, I'm assuming, and please feel free to clarify, that the when you're talking about neural adaptations, you're talking about the ability of uh, for us to instantaneously recruit those what we call high threshold motor units that are the ones that are going to be able to produce enough force. Yeah, that could be one of the things, right? So if we think about the levels of, of signal, you could send more signal 
but you could have less inhibition in the spinal cord or you can lower thresholds at the motor neuron, which would, as you said, makes it easier to fire. And one of the things that you said too is um, that I think is confusing for people. It's, I mean, it's confusing for me. I mean, if you, if you do low loads to failure or if you do low loads with blood flow restriction to failure, you will activate the, the across the whole spectrum. Uh, but the, but the, the, the neural strategy is different. So when you first start lifting a light weight, you don't need to activate the whole muscle to move the weight. Uh, by the end of it, you may have activated the whole muscle and that's maybe why we see such robust growth, but to move a heavy weight one time, you have to activate a huge portion of that muscle or the weight doesn't move. So although you get maximal recruitment, the strategy that the body uses is completely different in my mind. So, yeah. So let, let's, so you, you mentioned the difference between something like, like, uh, like a firing frequency in terms of the impulses in the, um, from the central nervous system all the way to the motor unit. You also talked about like rate cycling, right? So basically that's the principle that, you're only activating certain amount of muscle fibers and then they turn off and then they come through. And that's where you're going to see the robust growth in low load strength training versus something like heavy load strength training where your recruitment pattern. So the specificity of the adaptation is such that you get more efficient at being able to engage those muscle fibers all instantaneously, because as you said, the weight's not going to move, right? Yeah. And I, I think a, a follow-up to that is that some people, and maybe in, in, in physical therapy, might their next question would be is, do you need to, how strong do you need to get to, to make activities of daily living easier? A hundred thousand percent is something I think about way too, way too often. And I, I think that's an important question. So, and it gets to your point, like, who are we talking to? So if, if all you're talking about is maximal strength, then yeah, you need to lift with high loads. Right. Or at least spend some time doing that. But if, if it's just to get strong enough to make your life easier, I don't know that you need to be the strongest person on the planet for that. So I think I think that's an important caveat that should be included for sure. And what so we talked about the neural strategies. So we talked about the firing frequency. So how we're able we're able to fire more or quicker impulses. We also talked about the difference in terms of rate cycling. So it should make sense that when you're training low intensities, you will increase your strength because there is some sort of neural component. But if you're comparing it to a a, a task where the specificity of that training is geared toward the specificity of the assessment, which would be the one rep max or whatever you're doing. Well then, yeah, the recruitment, the recruitment patterns are, are probably going to matter. Right? So then there's other things too, that people kind of forget where these could play a role. It could also be the fact that, Hey, when we're doing a big multi-joint movement, we might have less coactivation, meaning the quads might be um, equally as active or slightly more active than the hamstrings. So now the, the torque that's produced at the knee joint is less. We get stronger or we do a task more, our body becomes more efficient, and now we have less hamstring coactivation. So for the same relative force, 
we're now or same absolute force that the quad is generating. It's now creating more knee torque because now we have less hamstring activation to, to antagonize it. So there's so many different ways that when we talk about strength, it, it could be different than the adaptations of muscle growth, right? Is that kind of? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, my stance, um, I, I just, I, I await evidence that muscle growth is important for strength. Um, like, I guess for here, this kind yeah. of goes into my nerd brain. What do we know about costumiers and their potential role in optimizing force transmission at the, you know, at the, at the muscle fiber level? Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. Um, I mean, there's a, there, there's. Well, what, what are costumiers first and foremost for the, for the listener or viewer, like in uh, your, you know, your thoughts and ideas. I mean, I'm not even familiar with that literature, to be honest. Okay. Well then, I yeah, know, I mean. So, I, but like, when you think about like at the, what's going on at the fiber level, right. How you transmit force. Right. So the, 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 the thing that needs to be kept in mind though, is, if you look at uh, like force transmission at a fiber level versus the force transmission when that fiber is in the human body, it's completely different. Mm. Um, and that's not to say that studying the fibers is not useful or studying what's going on locally is not useful. It, it's just giving you other information. So um, for me, I, I've always wanted to discuss what's going on in the human body like when you have that fiber in that person can they move better or can they do they are they are they better off or are they not better off it doesn't to me um it's irrelevant what's going on at the fiber level if, it, if they actually can't take advantage of it not that it's irrelevant but I, I mean you get the point i'm trying to make yeah uh there's not a there's a lot of people going well when we look at the fiber level uh this should tell us something about what's going on in the whole body. It's like, it could, right? But it, it doesn't necessarily mean that if I take this and I put it back in the person, which not what happens, but if, let's say we did, um, we're not all of a sudden, you know, if, if my fiber level got stronger, but if I'm not stronger, you know, uh, moving voluntarily. Mm -hmm. Yeah, then it, it, it's like, what? What, what, what's the difference? And, and that I, I don't really want to touch on this that much, but it almost reminded me of this whole debate now that, so there's two different, there's two different massive schisms that are happening in exercise science right now. One is the volume debate, right? How much do we need? And I want to circle back before we then go into the BFR stuff, which is the really fun stuff um, for, for, for me, uh, definitely uh, picking your brain here. But the second is this length and partial, uh, this length and partial debate. And, you know, I guess I'm wondering kind of what, what your thoughts are in terms of do, do we, is muscle growth, going to be maximized in all cases, which is what a lot of fitness influencers and even some scientists 
are trending towards saying that if we have a muscle that is in a stretched position and we recruit or we try to do a joint action that would signal that that muscle is recruited, that that's going to elicit better growth than if we were doing something like a middle of the range motion or full range of motion. Yeah. Um, you know, my, my students are really into this idea. I, I, I'm not I'm not really into it myself. Um, I think the concerns are always. Um, you know, I, I guess for me, it's hard for me to imagine that if you were to take differing things close to failure, that there would be big differences between them. Uh, that's hard for me to uh, to imagine. I, I think some people suggest that that, you know, what you're saying is, is that there are certain range of motions that are better off than others. Uh, but I think when you set up studies like that, you have to make some concessions on how close you are or away from failure uh, when you're comparing those tasks. So I don't really know. Um, I, I personally think that just just train like just train if you want to mix well, in some of the, well, if you want to mix not, in some of the not, other things Jeremy that's not sexy to put on Instagram just train just go through a full range of motion work very close if not to failure that's not going to get you clicks that's not going to get you views well well here's what I'll say too is you know I, I'm always very because similar to our conversation that we had earlier um I'm always very trying to be very careful about when someone's coming out with some new some new idea, even if it's like a rehash of an old idea, and then just immediately poo-pooing on it and going, ah, I don't think so, because I remember those days. Um, so for, for me, I, I I remain skeptical based on what I've seen, right? And, and to be fair, I haven't thought about it probably as much as you, as probably as much as my students, or it's not something I'm interested in. Um, but it's hard for me to imagine that there would be big differences, but you know, I, I remain cautiously optimistic or cautiously skeptical might be a better term. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there's, it brings up a lot of questions for me with the length and partial because, you know, and I don't want to, again, harp on this too much because this is a podcast in and of itself, but if, a muscle is going to under so the whole idea of a lengthened partial is that the muscle itself is going to undergo what's called stretch mediated hypertrophy which just means that at some point there is an increase in passive tension that is going to augment the mechanical tension that's going to lead to increased growth but then my mind goes to well there's a couple of things Number one, the muscle has to be activated as in some way, shape, or form during that contraction to be able to experience that additional growth. Now, that may or may not be true because we do have stretching studies where the muscle is not active and there is some growth, but that is a huge duration and high amounts of discomfort to be able to elicit that, that thing. So that's one. Number two, then you also have to say, all right, well, if we're thinking that there's there that the muscle, the sarcomere, so the, the smallest contractile unit of the muscle fiber, that has to experience passive tension. So it has to it has to go into the descending limb, right? At some like if that's gonna if Titan is going to be able to augment that mechanical tension, then there has to be an exposure of some sort to 
the descending limb. At least that's my understanding of that. So we need muscle biopsy studies to be able to see that. And then last, like the body, and this kind of goes back into activation, but if the muscle is there and our joint action is flexion to extension and we're, we're activating what's called, a, you know, what should be an extensor, well then the muscle still has to have some degree of leverage in that position to be able to get recruited. So like, these are all things that, I mean, again, it's very interesting to talk about, but at the same time, I find it so like, like it's, so, it's nerdy for us to talk about, but I don't find it relevant. Like it's, it's so tough for me because I'm, I'm very much concerned with getting people moving. And I feel that the fitness industry is a huge culprit in creating complexity where there doesn't need to be complexity. Yeah, I, I generally agree with that. Um, I, you know, they may argue that, well, we're not talking about it for those people. We're talking about it for people oh. who have maximized their growth and trying to add a little bit more, uh, which might be a fair point, but yeah, I, I'm with you on how, and how, how do we get people? And this is way outside of my area, but something I think a lot about where, how do, how do we get people wanting to exercise because people don't want to do it. Um, and this is something I always bring up in some of my classes I teach as well, where, you know, and people will say, well, they're lazy. And my first thought is, okay, but what is it about them? Like that doesn't make it appealing, right? How could we make it? And you know, the answer can't be, well, they just got to strap up the bootlaces and get after it. Well, that doesn't work obviously. So I don't know. Um, I I think, I don't know. I, there could be just something different about people who exercise versus people who don't. And maybe it's how they were exposed when they were really young. Do they have good experiences or bad experiences? Or I don't know. I I think you hit on a really important topic and it's kind of spiraling out into another sub, sub combo. But I like to think about it in, if you ever heard of the Prashka's stages of change model, I don't think so. So it's a it's a health behavior model that has various different stages. There's a pre-contemplation phase, there's a contemplation phase, then there's an action phase, then there's a maintenance phase, and there may be some relapse or something other, you know, last phase. But basically, I like to think about exactly what you just said in those terms because it helps me contextualize the rel the potentially relevant interventions that we can as health you know, me as a health provide health provider, being a physical therapist, but also as somebody who's generally interested in the promotion of exercise. And I, I circle back to this because the pre-contemplation phase, and to relate this to what you just said, which are, are there something that's different between exercisers and non-exercisers? Well, well, the pre-contemplation phase in Prosker's stage of change model basically means that you're doing something that is not desirable or is 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 not what you want them to do but they're unaware of what they're doing right so not exercising they're unaware that exercise should be something that is is really important fine then there's the contemplation phase contemplation phase is people are aware 
that exercise is good for them, but they're really not ready to make any sort of behavior change. And then there's the action phase. These are the people that are actively doing the activity that you want them to do, exercise, right? And then there's the maintenance phase where these this is when they've been doing it for six months, right? And six months is kind of, in my mind, that critical cutoff because we, we tend to see in, for example, diet studies, right? Diet adherence after six months tends to plateau. It's like 85% or something like that of people end up regaining the lost weight. If that's uh, that's a statistic that kind of fits in, maybe it's it's misquoted. I don't know, but it, a vast majority of people end up gaining weight or gaining more weight after after that. So then, what? Going back to your point, and this is something that in the last five years I've really begun to appreciate so much, and I think that this is the barrier that exists. It's that people associate exercise with looking good naked, right? Of it, there's just an aesthetic benefit to working out and nothing more. But what we're really finding out is exercise is the best non-pharmacological intervention you could do for your health. And if you combine modalities, it's even better. And so I think that from those individuals in the pre-contemplation phase, number one, we have to we have to get them to the contemplation phase. We have to bring them and, and get awareness that exercise is really important, right? That takes different strategies than somebody like who's in the contemplation phase, who I would say most people know they should exercise, right? So they're they're just not doing it. But I think in order for us to get them to that action phase, what we need to do is we need to talk, we need to show them that. In actuality, the a one strenuous exercise session creates, I think in one of the Instagram posts that I, that I looked at, it was over 4,500 genes that it impacts. And chronic exercise can help with reducing morbidity and mortality and, and things that extend beyond just aesthetics. You and I are definitely ones where we pursued our love of muscle physiology from the fact that we just want to get bigger muscles. But it's a hugely, I'm very passionate about this topic because the more I learn about muscle physiology, the more convinced I am that this is a, this is probably the biggest overall barrier is this, this lack of, of, of connecting the aesthetics to the, um, the overall systemic health and the fitness industry, which is why I was I wanted to talk to you about volume is making it way more complex than I think it needs to be. Yeah, I agree. And I think the one of the utilities of just resistance training and being physically active, if nothing else, it helps you maintain what your what your baseline function is. So let's say you're in your 30s and you haven't done anything. We know that if you as you age, that's going to start to decline, right? If you stay physically active, you're going to slow that decline. You're probably still going to lose, but it's going to be slowed down. So the 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 more you can maintain that health span over time, the better off you're going to be. And I think, you know, we have data on this in younger people. We have data on this in older people where if you exercise, you tend to be, I don't know, quote unquote, a little bit more robust. So you don't get hurt as easy. 
And that's typically when bad things start to happen, especially as you get older. You get hurt, you become inactive for a period of time, you lose a little bit of function, you may regain some of it, but not all of it. Um, and then you're worse off than you were before that, you know, that, that, um, that, you know, fall or whatever sickness, illness. So I think making yourself and just maintaining what you have, if nothing else, you don't have to be Mr. Olympia. And I think you're right. I think changing the perception of what people, uh, have to do. And, and I think that the idea of, you know, we've put into, we've put out into the ether that. You know, you always have to be continually pushing the limits, pushing the limits, pushing the limits. And that's that's true if you want to be Mr. Olympia or you want to be a powerlifter, you know, even though you're probably going to plateau, but you should be in your mind pushing it like like there are there's no such thing as a plateau. Just keep keeping yourself motivated. But for the normal person, that's a turnoff. It's like, well, I don't want to invest that much time. I, I want to just kind of, you know, maintain what I have. I'm not trying to just keep doing more and more and more every week. And I think that you know, we've talked about this before on, on, on social media, but it's like, I think that we need to be putting more emphasis on, yeah, tr getting people training and then just maintaining it, just do, get, getting something you're comfortable with maintaining. It doesn't matter if you're not increasing strength over time, just maintain what you have. And I think a lot of people would be better off. I mean, a lot of people are going to disagree with that, but you know, that's okay. <laughs> Listen, I think, I think having a healthy discourse and, and as you said, skepticism is really important to moving forward, to pushing the industry forward. And I'm always of the mindset, I want to challenge my own biases, not only in having conversations, but also in the research that I'm involved in, um, in the BFR space. But that's why I have people on this podcast that are going to have differing views than me because I want to hear them out and I want to make my own determination based on the state of the literature, their interpretations, and obviously practical experience as well. Um, so I guess we kind of covered a lot of this topic. I wanted to talk two things now because you already kind of mentioned them. And I do want to um, continually shine light on your work in the strength and conditioning space. And, um, but, but, but before we do that, you mentioned maintenance, what, and you mentioned like before three to four sets to fatigue per muscle group, a couple of times a week, is that kind of your, for, for the everyday person that's just looking to be physically fit, right? Resistance training wise, I'm bag the aerobic, um, for, for resistance training, what would you give in terms of a volume prescription based on your current understanding of the literature as, as a minimum effective dose that maximizes the potential physiological outcomes? So where does that kind of fit in? Yeah, I would probably have them do, you know, pick an exercise for a muscle group and I'd probably just have them do total body a couple times per week, uh, two to three sets, you know, two or close to failure. Um, if you're not feeling it that day, then, you know, do a little bit less, you know, but, um, you know, something that's not going to take forever to do you know, you can get in there and, and do a workout in maybe 25 minutes, um, and then go home. Um, most people could probably find some time to do that a couple of times per week. Um, and I think people which would is, be better which off. is another byproduct of the higher volume crowd, because it gives an excuse for people to not 
exercise. Oh, if I can't do five to six sets per muscle group <laughs> per workout, I'm clearly not going to gain the benefits. Yeah. And I think, you know, I know we're putting the aerobic aside, but you know, just building in some physical activity in your, in your daily life, you know, getting some steps in or, you know, playing some intramurals or playing, you know, sports with your friends. Um, you know, anytime I played basketball with the lab, you know, we don't do it very often, but I'm exhausted for days, you know, <laughs> play, playing like a, you know, 45 minutes or an hour worth of basketball. Um, so it's like, you know, if you, if that's something that you, you could build in that people like, people like to play basketball or, or whatever, uh, just to be moving, you know, getting some movement in physical activity, I think would be great um, with the weights. I think, you know, I, I don't think you need to be doing a lot, but I think that there's probably something for maintaining your health span by doing it a couple times per week. Yeah. And then I, I just kind of want you to touch upon, you know, cause you've been involved in a lot of different uh, areas uh, with extra science, but definitely want to talk about because you mentioned it before about this plateau effect um, in terms of muscle growth. And I kind of just want to familiarize the listeners on why we may experience a plateau in muscle growth and why, you know, for, for, for optimizing health that we may want to start earlier in our life resistance exercise training instead of later. However, even if you do start out later, there's still plenty <clears throat> of positive physical benefits and, uh, and mental benefits, uh, to exercising. Yeah. I think, you know, this is something I've been interested in for a long time. It's like you, 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 you start lifting weights, you increase muscle size. Um, and at some point, you're lifting weights, but your, your, your gains that are visually apparent to you um, kind of start to slow down, if not disappear completely, right? And I think people have started looking at that and going, well, that's because your program's not optimal. And it's like, uh, I, don't, I don't know if that's true. You know, I think that, you know, hitting a plateau in, in, in a muscle growth is a pretty normal thing. Um it could be because your training is, is messed up. That, that's possible. But I think in most cases, that's probably not the case. Now, one of the things that we have to we have to talk about is the limitations of the literature, right? You know, we don't have a lot of studies that are, you know, two, three, four years long. But I, I don't think, I think you can just look around people who are honestly assessing themselves, right? I've lifted weights for a long time, right? And you could argue that I haven't been as serious about it in the last few years. That's true. But there came a point where I wasn't really, I was getting stronger to a point, but I wasn't really changing my muscle size really at all. Um, or nothing, you know, visually apparent. And I, I was kind of curious as to, well, why is that? And then if you look at the literature, a lot of times what you'll see is large changes early on, and then it, it starts to dissipate. So it's not to say that you couldn't squeeze out a little bit more over time or that some of these people aren't increasing muscle size. But it's probably a fraction of what they would see in that first, you know, three to six months of training, right? Um, and I think part of what's confusing for people um, is it sounds like me and you started lifting weights when we were very young, right? So I think when we first started, like, I gained muscle growth for a long time. Yeah, but you were also lifting weights during development, right? So you were already growing. So I think that 
that might be very different than when someone who's 25 never lifted weights before starts increasing, starts lifting weights. So yeah, we wrote a paper, uh, Rio Kataoka did that, did a nice job on that, trying to explain why is there a plateau physiologically? And and the, the short answer is we don't know. Um, you know, there could be some mechanisms at the cell level that regulate how big it can actually get. Um, and this kind of shuts everything down. Maybe you have a, a limitation, how many malonuclide that you can, you can add. Maybe you have a limitation on just, you know, the ability to uh, regulate the system up to that, to where you just keep getting bigger. Um, and I, I think physiologically, it would make sense that you wouldn't just infinitely increase. Um, I don't know. We don't really do that with anything else. It's, it's hard to imagine why muscle growth would be that much different. Um, so, but it, but I think that, you know, with the other thing that we've talked about is maybe starting really, really young. So if you have this baseline that we talked about is trying to maintain, right? If you start lifting weights when you're 25, maybe you can shift that baseline up a little bit, but maybe not too much, right? I mean, once you're a full grown adult, you can change your physiology, but it's not very easy to do that. If you're a kid, right, maybe you can shift it up way higher than you would be if you were to do the same thing as an adult. Now, that's a lot of conjecture, right? Um, but I think that there could be something during the, the developmental period, right, where maybe if they are active, maybe if they are training, maybe they have, if they are participating in sports, maybe their baseline that they're going to have as an adult will be higher than it ever would have been had they not done that as a kid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's such a fascinating topic because – there is no infinite growth. And, and honestly, from a just a systems perspective, it makes sense. Like muscle is metabolically expensive. So why, why would we continue to experience unfettered growth if from an evolutionary perspective, we want to try to be as lean as possible? Yeah. Um, it it's just something that's interesting because you know, a lot of people there, you know, as much as I would like to believe that I have gotten bigger or whatever, I probably look the same as I did a decade ago. Um, I might have less body fat or I might have slightly more body fat, but generally speaking, I, I, I probably look very similar. Um, and I don't think that's appreciated enough because again, it's not, it's not sexy. It's not like a, you know, nobody wants to say, oh, yeah, hey, we're going to do this workout and, you know, you're going to gain, you know, what in the resistance training studies, right? It's a four to eight percent, something yeah. like that over a, over a period of growth. So like that four to eight percent in six to 12 weeks, that's not going to continue to to happen yeah. <laughs> for the other, infinity. The other part of that, too, is um, which is kind of a fascinating point is let, let's say that you are slowly increasing, right? Over time. At some point, you start to have the age-related effects start to occur. So you start to have this competition. Uh -huh. um, and what Which that you looks like. About, you kind of talked yeah. about in, in the paper where yeah. we have this concept, and I talk about this in in with respect to BFR, which we'll pivot to right after this, is anabolic resistance. Yeah. And, and maybe... Whereas, you know, muscle protein synthesis in, in this might be blunted in the trained state, but maybe muscle protein breakdown is less. Or, you know, maybe there's just a relationship change between the two where ultimately we want to be able to 
if we're going to grow more, we have to elevate muscle proteins, at least specifically myofibular yeah. protein synthesis. Um, and so I think that that's something that, again, is is relatively unexplored given the fact that it's very difficult to carry out these longitudinal strength training studies. Yeah. And I think that one of the things you kind of mentioned a little bit earlier is there needs to be some appreciation for because a muscle grows doesn't mean that it's due to what we typically discuss in response to exercise. So a muscle might grow during development, right? And the muscle maintenance that might be due to completely something completely different than the mTOR pathway, right? So we, we, we become very mTOR centric because we know that affecting that pathway affects your ability to respond to overload. Mm -hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean that it affects your ability to maintain muscle at baseline or the ability to develop and things like that. So uh, there's lots of different ways to grow, but we typically are always discussing how do we make it grow via exercise? And that might be different mechanisms than what happens during development or other. It might, or they might be related, but they could be different. I think that's worth mentioning as well. Yeah, I mean, oh, I... We keep on pushing the BFR stuff back. But I, again, it's so interesting because I'm like the BFR guy that tells people to strength train heavy yeah. um, because of a number of reasons. But I also think back to this where we also, so there's there's the whole, and you talked about this in the paper as well. And for those interested, it's in sports medicine. It's, what is it called? Let me let me just see, just so you have it. The plateau, the plateau of muscle growth re with resistance training and exploration of possible mechanisms. Um, you talked about this, um, where you know there is this disconnect between the the acute hormonal response and the longitudinal growth that's observed, and there is this movement which, to be fair, like I have a bias toward where mechanical tension is the primary driver and there's really almost nothing else that exists um, that can help explain the reasons why we get similar growth in low intensity, moderate intensity and high intensity or heavy load strength training if we have this whole thing. And that's where the physiology comes in, the differences, and you kind of end up at the same area where, you know, Effort is going to drive recruitment, which is then going to be, depending on your position on the force velocity curve, um, is going to increase muscle force, which is analogous to mechanical tension, et cetera. But what's interesting to me, and I was literally having this conversation on DMs with somebody like right before this, is we take anabolic steroids and you do nothing, like no exercise, and you can gain muscle mass. So I'm I'm very much interested in um, in why that may be the case if we're kind of unable to really make a determination between acute hormonal elevations and long-term growth. What do you, I don't know if you've actually looked into this or what your thoughts are, but I definitely want to cover this before we pivot to. Yeah, to the, I think to it gets to, you know, the, the different, it just works through a different way. So it's like the, the, the taking the anabolic steroids you're, you're changing your baseline to a tremendous extent. So like for the acute hormonal response, it's you get a little bit of a blip and it comes back down very quickly. But with steroids, I mean, you're increasing that, that, that baseline to a super physiological level and you're keeping it there all day. So I think that could have, you know, that, that's a, like an apples to oranges kind of comparison there uh, for me. Um, and I, 
you know, I, I'm with you on the acute hormonal response. I, I, I buy into all of that discussion. Um, but you were but, on that paper. You were on that paper that that when I reached out to you and you were like, yeah, we were sitting on this for like seven years or something like that with the uh, Laurentino paper on. Uh, I was like, I was like, oh, that fits my biases so well. Yeah. Um, and I think the, you know, that's not to say that, you know, when I first started, you know, learning about some of this literature, uh, especially with the acute hormonal response, I remember thinking like, because it was, it was Stu Phillips. Uh, he was presenting some of their work. And I'm like, I remember it was my first conference. And I remember sitting in the audience being like, what the hell is this guy talking about? <laughs> is this guy crazy? Um, and I just remember being dumbfounded that, you know, how could this be? I, I know people who take steroids. I, I know for a fact that this, these hormones work. But I, I was I was I was not understanding that the acute hormonal response is not the same thing as a chronic elevation in that hormone, and it's not. And and I think that people will often hear what he says or hear what I say or hear what you say and go, "Oh, hormones aren't important." That's not what that's being said at all. If you were to to take someone's testosterone and deplete it to zero, they would have some. They would have an effect. Right, we're talking about the acute change in that hormone, um, and I think that we just have to think about what is that comparison. Because Stu's going to say, "Well, you know, when you have that acute change, it, it doesn't really change your resting level, so it'll go up and come back down, and that's not enough to do anything." Hmm. Yeah, I think I think it's it's fascinating from a you know a, a, a nerdy perspective, but it, it again is a vehicle to increase the complexity of just working out because now people are doing, you know, the, the whole high volume, low rest, maximize the hormonal response, like very strenuous type of, of workouts. And I just don't know if that's necessary given what we currently know about the, the role of acute hormone elevation and it's ultimately, you know, longitudinal benefits on muscle growth. And I just, it just really frustrates me that we have this, <laughs> we have this health crisis in our country and we have the solution. It's there. Exercise. And it's just like, and I guess this maybe is just the, the, the role of industry in general, which is we have to create this, you know, this sense of meaning through, unfortunately, through complexity where people are like, you have to do this, you have to do that. This is going to maximize it. And you know what? There are certain strategies I would, rec I would say, yeah, this is probably going to maximize your results. But is that something that we need to tell the masses who are are very hesitant to just get involved in exercise? I I personally don't don't think so, and that's what frustrates me so much about this volume debate, where we're seeing that, as you mentioned earlier, once one set to fatigue is going to elevate muscle protein synthesis a hundred percent, and then as you go further and further and do more and more sets, there's diminishing returns, yeah. but you're still getting a massive massive spike that's going to help you. 
And, and for me, as somebody is interested in helping people, you know, become the best versions of themselves, that's through exercise. And, and it's just, it really just frustrates me to no end, um, thinking about this stuff. Cause we, it's like, you, you have the solution. It's like right here. And, and people are still dumbfounded at, and want to take medication and, and all it's just, it's, it's so frustrating. Yeah. Um, any last thoughts for you on the volume on anything that we discussed before we pivot to a little bit of BFR for like 15, 20 minutes? No, I think we, I think we pretty much covered it. I think you're right. I think, you know, at some point, all you're doing is delaying your recovery. And for some people that, that might not matter because they, maybe they're not going to train again, that body part for another week. But if you're looking to maximize it, um, then maybe you should be doing the minimum that you need to do to maximize that threshold, which is probably a lot less than what you're currently doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a fascinating area and, uh, I'm definitely looking forward. I have some high volume people coming on, so it's, uh, it's going to be good to hear some divergent perspectives. Um, well, yeah, so let's, let's pivot to a little bit of BFR, um, that, for for people listening, you know, Jeremy is one of, if not the most published author in the space on BFR. Um, I have been, you know, as I said, his paper on the practical restrictions in journal strength and conditioning was like the paper that I remember picking up and being like, wow, interesting. Um, and, and kind of spurred my neurotic uh my neurotic dive into all things blood flow restriction and so jeremy has been extensively published does has his area his hands in a lot of different areas in the bfr space and in fact you know jeremy to my knowledge um was really the first researcher to spearhead the use of personalized pressure during bfr application um, unless I'm wrong. Um, I'm, I mean, I was looking, I was trying to find, you know, I found the 2013 paper that was kind of calling for a personalized pressure. Um, but yeah, I think, I think some of the Brazilian groups were, they had done some work on that. Uh, they had used a relative pressure. Um, but yeah, I think it's fair to say that, you know, we made a big push for it um, and made it very vocal. Um, because for me, it, it was as simple as saying, like, um, you know, if we were if you were to go to a conference and someone were to say, what load did you use? And you say, oh, we use 10 pounds for everyone. You would be laughed out of the room. But if you more or less did the same thing with blood flow restriction, it was it was just, you know, another day at the office. And I was just puzzled by that. Um, and so I, I think it's fair to say that, you know. We and but you know others as well. Uh, we're really making a push to be like, hey, this should we should be making it relative somehow to this person. Um, and we we did write a lot about that for sure. Yeah, I think your the the article that I also referred to is the elephant in the room. I think it was a letter yeah. to the editor, um, Marty Springer's paper. Yeah, and but you all you also had like you had the relative arbitrary pressures and looking at that. And, um, 
And again, for those that are listening, just like, obviously I'm assuming, you know, about ball flow restriction, right? Um, but personalizing the pressure just means that you're, we're taking what's in essence, your blood pressure with a specialized cuff and we're exercising at a percentage of that. Now, this is, you know, uh, the first topic I definitely want to talk about is the the potential relevancy of personalized pressure. Um, because there is a contingency, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about this, that really is just like, hey, it, we can just use whatever pressure we want. And as long as we're exercising to volitional fatigue, it shouldn't matter. And so I kind of want to hear your thoughts from a, a researcher uh, perspective, why or why not should personalized pressures be used and how important are they in the practical setting, but also in the research setting and kind of if there is a divergent, you know, opinion, why that is the case? Yeah, I, I think it's one of those things where if you were to use um, just an arbitrary pressure, meaning that Everybody gets the same pressure. Uh, are you probably going to see, uh, and if, especially if you're going to failure, right? Are you still going to see benefits? Probably. Um, assuming that you don't have people <clears throat> who are under complete arterial occlusion, right? So it's possible that if you apply a pressure high enough, arbitrarily, and one person gets it, and it's it's super occlusive for them, and they can't do they can do maybe four reps, then they probably aren't going to have the same adaptation, even if they are training the failure. But I, I think in general, um, I, I guess there's been plenty of studies in that have used an arbitrary pressure that have seen some benefits. So, in that sense, could you get away with it? Probably, um, unless you run into that situation that I just said. Now, from an adherence perspective, from a safety perspective. Um, from an applying this in a medical situation um, or a clinical situation, I think relative pressures are going to be important because we know that applying a higher pressure induces greater discomfort, right? We know that applying a higher pressure, that affects the arterial flow into the limb, right? So if, if I do 30% uh, of my 1RM uh, with a high pressure, I'm going to have less blood flow going into the limb than if I am training with 40% or if I'm training free flow. So there is a physiological difference. The other thing that Marty Springer is also concerned about is the cardiovascular response is greater with a higher pressure. So from a safety perspective, I think that it probably makes sense to know what pressure it is that you're applying. And I think if you're ever going to make any head, I'm not a clinician. I don't want to give anybody that impression. Uh, but my guess would be is if you're applying it to someone in a clinical setting, the more information that you can have to apply it as safe as possible is going to be the better. You're going to be better off. Um, but of course, you know, if I applied 100 millimeters of mercury, people train to failure, uh, depending on the cuff size, probably going to be fine. But the cardiovascular response might differ across people. Um, and, you know, so, yeah, I, I still maintain that you know, having some idea of the pressure that you're applying is a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I think you hit a lot of it on the head. I think what you didn't talk about, and I know you believe this, is the ability to 
compare relative responses between interventions. Yeah. Um, if we don't know the relativized pressure and we're we're using an arbitrary pressure uh, to apply it to that person, we don't necessarily know if there will be a divergent response or not. And so this is just another way that we can be able to standardize the application. Because what people should appreciate is, and we kind of hit on this indirectly, is that there exists a normal heterogeneity in study methodology in strength training studies, right? Just exists. The rest periods, the loads, the, the population, everything. But then with blood flow restriction, now we have another layer of potential heterogeneity that impacts the physiologic response to the application of BFR to the person. And so personalized pressures just allow us to know. And basically, you know, and, and this is where I kind of want to ask you too, is, is there a, you mentioned it kind of, and, and to my knowledge, from the last that I looked at it, that the blood flow restriction responses is not directly linear in the sense of 50% AOP or arterial occlusion pressure is not 50% reduction in blood flow, but at least it gives us a relativized value that we can use in, in the study. So basically, in essence, personalized pressure is trying to reduce some of the heterogeneity that's now going to exist within the cuff application um, parameters of the methodology that's being used. So that to me is a huge, huge reason why personalized pressures, especially, and I'm a clinician, so I can say this, um, are really important in a clinical setting when we're dealing with individuals with comorbidities because of papers like uh, the Mar Marty Spranger's group and talking about the potentially heightened cardiovascular response and understanding the different comorbidities have on the exercise presser reflex. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, the other component of that is there could be certain adaptations that are preferably uh, driven by higher pressures. So if you don't know the pressure that you're applying for that person, it's going to be hard to really target uh, that's been, like, for example, you know, changes in blood flow, vascular adaptations, you know, we don't have a lot of good evidence for this, but there's some suggestion that maybe higher pressures might be better. Um, so if you don't know what's a high pressure, then that's a problem. So yeah, let's let briefly segue into vascular adaptation. So you're, so why may that be something that we should care about? Well, I, I think that, um, from a health span perspective, if you can improve blood flow, maybe you can better maintain muscle over a period of time. Um, so I, I think that's why I, most people that are listening to this podcast would probably care about it. Um, but I, I think just having overall general blood flow is a, is a good thing. Um, I think the interest in it now is, is that some people view that as a potential moderator for the ability to change, uh, to make a muscle grow. In other words, if you have greater baseline blood flow or a greater vascular network to begin with, maybe you can do better deliver nutrients and that can better um, utilize those nutrients to grow. Uh, so that's probably, you know, the angle that I would take. Um, but, you know, other ones are from performance perspective, right? Increasing 
you know, vascularity, you're able to better get rid of byproducts and things like that, clear things from the muscle um, and keep exercising for a, a given period of time. Um, there's some suggestion that higher pressures might be important for that, but you know, it's, it's, I wouldn't say that, it, you know, it's a done deal, but I, I have a hunch that there's something to there. Yeah. Um, anything else where, where, so you mentioned vascular, is there any other applications where pressure, where understanding the relativized pressure may be something that we need to consider? Um, outside of safety, comparing across studies, uh, you know, maybe certain adaptations. I mean, nothing's coming to my mind, uh, but I, I think those are, you know, uh, you know, the, the part that always bothers me is that when you get people who are like, well, it doesn't matter the pressure that you apply because you're still going to see this. It's like, no, it does matter <laughs> because we know that differing pressures has a different impact. Um, and I, I think to bring up the, the blood pressure thing one more time, you know, I, I want to make sure that and I know that's not what we're doing, but I want to make sure that, you know, Marty Springer's whole argument is uh, that there could be people who are very sensitive to metabolites and that we need to be cognizant of that. And I'm on board with that. Um, I think both of us are. I think the part that maybe we took issue with is, you know, you're not, there's never a look at the magnitude of the change. And you're looking at these studies where it's like, um, this study augments blood pressure, this study augments blood pressure. It's like, yeah, of course, because you're comparing low load exercise to low load exercise with blood flow restriction. But the, the important question is to what magnitude is that changing and how long does it stay elevated after you deflate the cuff? And, and both of those are, in my mind, not to alarming levels. It's usually less than high load exercise and it comes back to baseline within 10 or 15 minutes. So I don't, for most people, um, you know, if you have someone who maybe is hypersensitive to the metabol reflex, maybe you use your clinical expertise and you do or do not use it, but to just make a blanket statement because blood pressure is to a greater response. Yeah. But, but the magnitude of that is important, right? Is it increasing up to 300 millimeters of mercury? It's not. Okay. Well, maybe that's something that should be discussed. I think that's and even, and even that it's a, you know, like it goes back to, I'm sure you're familiar with the McDougal paper in 1985, where they had yeah. people do five rep max or one rep max, one of the, and basically peak, peak systolic diastolic was like 480 over 350, some ridiculously high number where we're not even, we're not even going half of that. And BFR, even though, again, we're comparing it, it, we know that the B, the blood, uh, the, blood pressure is going to increase set by set by set. So for example, in, in where if I'm having somebody that's hypertensive, I'm going to monitor them, which is what you should be doing when you're working with individuals with comorbidities, monitor blood pressure, monitor other signs and symptoms associated with ischemia and things like that. But you can also deflate during the rest period, right? It might reduce the magnitude of the overall stimulus, but those metabolite induced effects are going to dissipate, but they're not going to dissipate within 20, 30, the majority of them are not going to dissipate within 15, 20, 30, 30 seconds. So you can now mitigate and you can kind of go through and apply BFR, get a little bit of that accelerated fatigue without creating that magnitude of stress for that person that may have comorbidities. Yeah. I guess the other point I would bring up is, okay, what are you going to do instead? They're just not going to do anything. 
Um, is that the solution that they don't do any exercise? And maybe it is, I don't know. Uh, but you know, I think it's, it's worth comparing, like, what would it, what's the normal exercise look like for someone like this? Um, you know, and I think we talked about this before, but it's like, if it's clear, if you're clear to do normal exercise, you know, probably not in every situation, I probably need to be very careful making a blanket statement, but I think it's safe to say that in, in most cases, it's probably, if you can do normal exercise, probably we could do low load BFR, assuming that you're applying it appropriately and, um, you know, using your brain when you're applying it. Um, Remember, Jeremy, common sense is not so common. Yeah, that's right? true. So, so yeah, I mean, I think now the last thing I want to talk about before we segue on is how important is a personalized pressure in somebody that's in the fit, that's in a fitness setting that is healthy and is probably using weights that are greater than 20 to 30% of the one rep max when doing BFR. How important do you feel understanding what that pressure actually is? Yeah, I think that's complicated. Um, I, I would I would tend to try to get them to use a little bit lighter weight um, because one of the things that we know is, is that once you start creeping the load up, at some point, for whatever reason, is it because you're interrupting blood flow with just the contraction intensity? I don't know. Um at some point, you're probably not getting an advantage to blood flow restriction. The, the utility in my mind is using it with low loads. Now, practical restriction, which is one of the things that I'm interested in, is you don't really know really how it's hard to tightly regulate that pressure. Um, so how important is it for the normal person who's probably interested in just muscle growth? You probably have some wiggle room there. We know that, you know, between 40 percent, 90 percent arterial occlusion pressure uh, it's probably going to give you a very similar response. So as long as you get it close to that, you're probably fine. Um, you're probably going to be fine regardless, you know, especially if you're training close to uh, close to failure. So uh, I think for most people, it's it's if you get close, assuming you're outwardly healthy, um, probably good enough. Because what you, the reason why I say that is you start having people who are going, well, I have it on this arm and I have it on this arm. It's It feels slightly different. Is that going to be a problem? It's like, it's probably fine. Um, I wouldn't stress out about it. Um, but I'd also say that, you know, I have people who sim, anytime I do one of these, I have people who go, remind me never to use blood flow restriction. Doesn't, it's not better. I'm like, I don't care if you use it or not. I'm not an advocate for it. Uh, I, I just study it. It's something I'm interested in. Um, it makes me no difference whether you use it or you don't use it. I think it's a, a, a potentially valuable tool, especially in certain circumstances, but and it might be a way to keep you interested and, and motivated to train. But if you don't want to do it, then you could also just not do it. And you don't have to send me a message. You could just not do it. Yeah, I think, I, I think again, there's, there's the idea. And then this is where I connect. I really take, um, I really think it's important that when I teach blood flow restriction, that it's framed within the lens of normal strength training. Because I truly believe that, that what we do know is longitudinal growth tends to be the same at, when we're exercising with or without BFR to volitional fatigue, right? That's pretty, and the, and the magnitude of growth tends to be very similar, even to he heavy load strength training. So for me, my own bias is Occam's razor, 
if, if, if our body is meant to be super efficient, then there should be one predominant or, or a predominant pathway that is underlying this with different mediators, kind of we talked about throughout the conversation, but different mediators that can impact the magnitude of that, that overall response. But it's basically underlying in, in one way, shape or form. I think where people get caught up is that they're, they bought into the idea that blood flow restriction is this magical tool that they're going to be able to unlock new muscle growth. And I think that BFR <laughs> resistance, exer resistance exercise is boring to me because it's like, okay, we already know that it's going to produce similar growth. We already know that there's a moderator variable with pressure. We do know, as you, as you said, and I firmly believe if we don't, if we apply too high a pressure, we're getting volitional fatigue before we get maximal motor unit stimulation and thus potentially suboptimal results. That's boring. However, I do think that there is, I'm very interested in this, um, is the, potential synergistic effects that BFR has on aerobic exercise and its potential to maximize the peripheral and or central stress that is given not only at low intensities, because we already know that that's going to happen, but at moderate to high intensities where we're working at trying to create the maximum possible adaptation. And that's where the, the, the researchers out in Australia are trying to, trying to really understand where I think BFR may have a novel impact beyond just low intensity exercise. Um, but I just think that there's just like it, with resistance exercise, people make it too complicated. Um, you just train with it. If you want to reduce your load, if you don't want to do BFR, then just do low load strength training to failure. You're going to do a lot more reps, but you're going to get the, your many roads lead to, to growth. As yeah. I, I, I will say that, you know, we have some data coming out soon. Um, I, I don't know if this is going to be repeatable. We haven't, we're starting another study in January to try and address this, but, um, you know, doing maximum hand grip exercise, right? That like we said earlier that induced the greatest amount of strength, but it did not induce a cross education effect. However, low intensity plus blood flow restriction did, which was surprising for me. Um, I, I, not that it wouldn't do it, but to it would do it in high load, would it? And we had a non exercise control and we had about I don't know, like 180 people in the study. So it's not like it's done on seven people. Um, so I feel pretty confident that there's something going on with the cross-education effect. And I don't know. I don't know what's mm -hmm. driving it. Um, you know, like, is there something special about just that hand grip modality that we wouldn't see it in doing dynamic exercise? I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, I, I think that, you know, in general, I'm in agreement that, you know, blood flow restriction is a tool that could be used. It doesn't have to be used. Uh, there could be situations where maybe it's, maybe you do need to be using it, or if that's something that you really like to do, then just do that. Um, but there could be some times we're doing rehabilitation, which is kind of your world, not mine. Um, but seems like it could be effective to get you back to maybe normal exercise, or uh, maybe there is something, you know, some kinks in there with cross education or something like that, which, I think I think it's premature to say, uh, but maybe something to keep an eye out on. Yeah, I mean that that is very interesting. You know, we do see, and there is research out there. Although I, I don't, you know, uh, in terms of 
some of the articles that were published that that just show there is some growth that's happening and some strength increases that are happening on unoccluded areas um, in the hips, for example. Um, so I guess like that could be something that goes there. I mean, for me, I, I was always under the assumption that cross education is predominantly driven by intensity um, of, yeah, of contraction. Too. So I, again, these are all things where if you have an overlying model, you fit in the nuance and you kind of see, all right, well, where, where does this potentially fit in? And if this is a novelty, that's great because that helps us improve our overall understanding of the model that we're working with in our head. So I'm definitely looking forward to, um, to that. Um, and, uh, with that also being said, right now shifting gears, right. You also were the first group to really, and this is segueing into my interests in, in this area is you were really the first group to look at some of the um the differences between the cuff itself mm -hmm. and i think that as we have as as many people are going to be watching and listening have <laughs> have used cuffs of different brands and and everything um there is this idea that um that in some marketing that all cuffs are created the same or the effects are, are all similar. And I think I would love for you to touch upon some of your work in terms of cuff material and cuff width, which really those are the two that I associate you um, yeah. your work with in terms of building to where I'm at right now, where is more advanced features, design characteristics. But I really point to your lab in being the pioneers in this you know, sub-niche of of BFR yeah. and also talking about um, how research is normally conducted and what devices are normally used for for a lot of the research that you've done and how that may or may not translate to the other devices that are commercially available. Yeah, so um, I think the how we came across this when I first got to Oklahoma, they had a couple of different Katsu devices, and that was kind of the probably the company that I guess made it very popular to begin with. So my, my initial bias, my initial go-to was this is the way that blood flow restriction should be applied, right? I very much bought into the hype, right? This is how you do it. And anything else is not blood flow restriction. Now, the obvious issue with that is, is that looking at the literature, there were other people doing it that weren't doing the Katsu, but were seeing effects. So how, how I did those mental gymnastics in my mind, I'll, I'm not sure. I don't remember. Um, but we, we first came to this going, well, you know, when we apply the same pressure to everyone, uh, it looks like some people have a very easy time and some people have a very tough time. So I, I wonder what accounts for that, right? I wonder what might play a role with that. And we first compared kind of the the – Hokanson wide cuff to the, the Katsu. Um, and we were like, well, uh, let's just compare these because people are using one pressure for one and, and using it with the other. Um, and basically we found that the narrow cuff required a, a much greater pressure than the wide cuff. And in fact, a lot of them we couldn't even cut off, right? Um, and 
that's something we can talk about here in a second too. Um, but then we got to kind of discussing about, well, what if we had to be the same cuff size, right? Um, and, and then we did that and we saw, you know, much more similar effects, but people would say, well, there's still something about this cuff material, right? Uh, so when we would do all these comparisons, what, what basically what we found is, is that a wide cuff requires a lower pressure, uh, almost universally. Uh, the cuff material, it may matter a little bit, but as long as you're able to make the pressure relative, it's probably not that big of a deal. Now, I think the concern is, is that there's some of these cuffs where you can't make it relative, right? Because and they still end, end, sorry to cut you off, no, but you this is like a huge area of pet peeve for me. And they continue to say our cuff is more comfortable and is giving you, because they can't apply the same relativized pressure, and they're saying, hey, we don't need arterial restriction, we just need venous restriction, that, okay, well, we're gonna get the same result and you're gonna be more comfortable. But none of the studies that I've come across have shown that when set to a standardized cuff length or cuff width, that when you relativize the pressure, that that response is somehow different. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually I got to where I kind of transitioned to just using the Hokanson. It's just easier to apply. Um, you, you, you know what the, you have a better idea what the units mean. Um, you know, because the Katsu also has something called the initial pressure, which is confusing for anyone who's never used the Katsu device. It's impossible to describe to someone. Um, and you know, it, it just, to your other question, it's like a lot of the literature is using the Hokanson device, right? Which is what we use. We've used the Katsu. I have the Katsu, but I don't use it very often. Actually, I haven't used it in probably 10 years. Um, <laughs> That's not very often. <laughs> so, um, but the Hokanson is just, it's just easier. Now, Delphi came along and, you know, they've been used successfully in studies as well. So I think the, the key thing is, is that, is every cuff the same? No. Um, but if you can somehow account for the pressure that you're applying, there's probably minimal, there's going to be minimal differences between them. Now, some people would suggest that in the lower body that, or even in the upper body, that if you apply a wide cuff, that maybe you attenuate some of the growth underneath the cuff. There's some data for that. Um, you know, strength is not affected. You still see muscle growth, but maybe it's a little bit, a little bit less. There's a couple studies that show that. However, you know, and, and my bias is always a narrow cuff. I, I just there's something about it. The ease of use, it feels better. It's more comfortable. But in the lower body, it just doesn't work because for most people, the device can't cut off the blood flow, um, and so you, you can't also set made, a relative you pressure. Talked about yeah, and you also talked about in one of your papers. Um, that the muscle architecture may be something that yeah. we need to consider with respect to the upper versus the lower body. Um, because you did talk about one of your, well, two papers where you're talking about participants actually preferred the narrower cuff in the upper body. Yeah. And, and I would totally agree with that. Um, in fact, you know, it's, it's something that like I, I if I don't if I have access because I have access to a lot of different cuffs, I tend to use 
the narrow cuffs only for the upper body just because we get the rolling of the um rolling of the bicep yep. under the cuff and it's uncomfortable the other thing i'll say is this is something we've not published yet um but it was, it was a good reminder for me about making sure i i know exactly kind of what i'm measuring because we we find that you know there is a little bit more discomfort when you apply blood flow restriction right and then i i automatically make the parallel well that means people aren't going to be there are going to do it because it's more discomforting but then when we ask people, it's like, would That's you continue exactly doing right. this type of training? It's like, oh, yeah. It's like, yep. so it was more discomforting, but you would do it. You would still do it. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, <laughs> why didn't I, why didn't I ever think about asking that simple question before? Um, so we did that. I, yeah, we did that uh, in our we have two studies that um, that I was involved in looking at auto regulation. And we asked that question, the Likert scale, how likely are you to <laughs> perform this exercise again? And we had the Delphi that was manufactured setting to do auto-regulated versus non-auto-regulated pressure, and then low load. And while auto-regulation had no impact on the performance of, you know, in the upper or lower body, it did have a little bit of divergent responses in the upper body versus the lower body, but no change in likelihood to perform it again across all different things. They were like, yeah, it was reported as more uncomfortable, but on, uh, I think it was a seven or 7.5 out of 10 in terms of likelihood to perform it. So it is something that um, is interesting because from my practical experience on me, I am definitely somebody who's done all the BFR stuff that exists. Like I've done all the protocols as much as I possibly can. Um, and I hate every second of a lot of it, but, um, talking about patients, like there are patients that I I've done BFR on once and like, I'm never doing that again. Um, so it's interesting to see some of the dichotomy that exists, um, within the likelihood to perform and yep. the, the actual, you know, actually performing it basically. Yep. Um, so, so yeah, so you commented on the, the cuff material that you, so you're saying that it kind of doesn't really matter what material it is, especially if it's standardized to a relative same width and personalized pressure. Yeah. I think the relative pressure accounts for a lot of things in my mind. Um, you know, the other point of that is what factors other than the cuff affect the pressure limb size, not that the composition doesn't matter, but it's mostly the size of the limb, at least from what I can tell, that on average, people with bigger limbs require greater pressures than people with smaller limbs. Obviously, if you're hypertensive, that's going to figure in there as well. Um, but the point is, and I think this is a, something you've done really a good job on too, is just educating people that, yeah, all those things matter, but it seemingly you can account for a lot of them by just taking the relative pressure. And then we don't have to have this discussion. Um, we which, can is, go, which is unbelievable because yeah. there was two papers that I was asked to review on different factors outside of, of, you know, the, 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 the blood pressure or limb circumference, or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, but does that really matter? Because, you know, this is almost like intellectual, like we're, we're just doing things to do things to try to publish because at the end of the day, if we're recommending personalized pressure, it's going to account for all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
you know, the, the thing that we tried to do recently, we just um, put some revisions in, you know, we had a, I had a former student, uh, Dr. Rob Spitz, and this guy can build anything. So, and, and modify lots of different things. So I won't say how exactly we did this, but our idea was, is, you know, would there be a way, because we can cut off blood flow on everyone with a wide cuff. It's a narrow cuff that we have a problem with. So this <laughs> this guy basically uh, is able to modify this device to where we can output very high pressures, much higher pressures than 300 millimeters of mercury. Um, so the idea was is let's get an equation where we'll apply a wide cuff um, and then we'll just uh, validate this equation. And then if people want to use narrow cuff, all they have to do is use the wide cuff and then put it in an equation and then apply that to with this system with the narrow cuff. The issue is, is that we still had people we couldn't cut off. And the reason is, is because, you know, on those narrow cuffs, you know, the, the, the more narrow it becomes, you know, the bladder length is still the same. So I think at some point you're covering such a small portion of the limb because some of these people that we couldn't cut off, their limbs are enormous. So the cuff fits, but it's, it's not really, it, mm. it doesn't like the equation is kind of going to break down. So we weren't able to actually be successful in this. Uh, but I was excited at the at the time because he was showing me this 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 device. Like we we applied a cuff to a paint can at first, and it was it like crumpled it. I'm like, okay, this might actually work. Um, and we were able to get arterial occlusion on me, um, which I've never had before with a narrow cuff. But there's some people, and it's like if we have like ten people out of the study, it's like well then it's not useful. Yeah, um, we're going to run into the same problem. So um, I thought we I thought we had a way. But we didn't. Oh, well, you know, you and your lab are going to continue to experiment, continue to push the field forward. Um, what what I want to just talk about before we kind of wind down the podcast and, um, and, and turn it off is I want to just ask you, what has surprised you about blood flow restriction, what hasn't surprised you and, you know, anything that you're looking forward to in the space in the years to come. Yeah. Um, what surprised me? It's a good question. I, I think one of the things is, is that I always thought about this from a muscle growth and strength perspective as a kind of like a bodybuilder slash powerlifter, things like that. Um, and ha always had that as a, as a view, not that it, I mean, we always, we always talked about it being useful for, for the clinical side, but I, I guess I, how much it's blown up in the clinics and how much it's blown up. I mean, even that Ole Miss, you know, the, the football team, you know, for rehabilitation uses it, they use it for all the athletes here. And I think that's had a lot of D one, uh, universities in the United States. And I think, you know, you know, you, it's not, you know, that is that's not from the stuff that I've done, it's stuff from what you've done, what Johnny Owens, you know, people who go out in the space and talk to these people, clinicians, because that's who clinicians listen to. Uh, they're not going to listen to me. Uh, so I think they that, should. I think that, uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I think they should take the principles that I that we have and then use their clinical expertise to apply those how they see fit. Uh, but, I, but I have been surprised at how how eventually receptive people have become. Um, 
in a lot of places where I, I wouldn't necessarily expect that. Um, I think the the not surprising part, I'm not really sure. Um, I, I guess one of the things that I think we're going to see more of as this gets applied more and more is these individual case studies, right? And they're usually going to be negative, right? Some of them are going to be positive, but some of them are going to be negative. Um, that's not going to surprise me at all because um, I actually spoke in Denmark about blood flow restriction maybe seven years ago. And one of the guys in the audience uh, brought up the question of, you know, what do you think, uh, basically asked me about the safety of blood flow restriction when you start applying this to a lot of people. And I, I understood this question, but I didn't really understand this question. Uh, I better understand this question now. Right. But what I was getting at is I'm like, well, there's been safety studies that have been done that show that it's relatively safe. Um, it's very comparable to normal exercise. But I, I think what he was getting at is when you take something and you apply it to lots of people, um, that's when you start to see some of the things that you only see in, in small groups of people. So um, that's where I think these case studies are going to be potentially useful, but also potentially um may be able to be used and say, see, I told you blood flow restriction is not safe um, when, you know, the, they don't put it in context of what a case study is. But I, uh, so I, I think that the number of case studies that are going to be coming out, I think it's not going to be surprising to me, but I would like to see it um, put into context of, of, of that study design. Uh, but I still think they can be useful because maybe overall, I think I, I feel comfortable saying that blood flow restriction is relatively safe and that it doesn't increase your risk compared to normal exercise for most people. Um, but, you know, there's always that minority of populations that you're not going to see in a research study. Um, and I think as this becomes more popular, um, we're going to find out who this works really, really well for. Um, and then we're also going to find out, I think, hey, who this does not work well for and who it could be very, you know, we need to be very careful. So I think uh, we need to cautiously move forward. Um, but yeah, I, I'm looking forward to seeing that and I'm looking forward to, I don't have the ability to do this data. Um, I'm not a clinician. I don't work in the clinical world, but I would like to see, I would, I would like to, um, have a better understanding of whether there's something to just applying blood flow restriction by itself, right? You know, there's some studies early on to suggest that, Hey, maybe there's something to this, um, that, you know, that's kind of my first phase of my progression model. If you can't do anything else, do this inflation and deflation. Maybe that can attenuate uh, muscle loss. Maybe it can help maintain strength. But there's not a whole lot of data behind that. Um, and I don't know why that is. Is it because um, other studies have been done and, and don't show it so they don't publish it? Is it because there's just really tough to do those studies? Uh, but I would like to see that done uh, in, in clinical settings with a bigger population, a bigger sample size. Uh, that's on my wish list. Um, but beyond that, um, I think just continuing on and with our progression of research um, is what I'm excited about. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's it's definitely so many interesting questions that are are asked or are being asked by various cohorts i actually i haven't really thought about 
this the case study scenario before, but it, it really makes a lot of sense because the biggest thing that I get asked is, I have this patient. Can I do BFR on that person? And I do my best to not get frustrated because I know people want an answer. But for, for us as clinicians, and the I always I always go thinking back to, okay, what is the indications for BFR in the in the clinical setting? Right? We have disuse atrophy, we have a loss of muscle mass, we have a loss of muscle strength, we have a decrease in function, we have a decrease in aerobic capacity. Can this approach impact any of those aforementioned impairments? If it can, then it is indicated. That's the first step. Then the second step is involving some sort of screening process, right? And it's, so it's, it's something that is super um, interesting to me because when you're talking about the fact that, of course, there's going to be people that are going to be intolerant to BFR. We yeah. see it on a day-to-day. -day. We try to use, and the way that I try to teach BFR is, for me, I firmly believe that the, and we're seeing the adaptations that happen in strenuous resistance exercise at the microvascular level and at the muscle cell level in terms of ion channel differences and things like that to help maintain and buffer the metabolites um, to help with sustaining performance. We see that they're very similar with strenuous exercise um, and supersede low intensity exercise. So it goes back to one of my biggest and most important screening questions is, have they done resistance exercise before? What is their what is their history? Because we know these adaptations with a repeated bout effect can last a long time, right? So for us, it's more like how strenuous have they exercised in the last six months, right? And, and using that as a kind of screener, but we're inevitably gonna get these populations that are gonna be intolerant to BFR. Um, and I agree with you wholeheartedly that we have to look at it in the totality of the evidence and what that person is presenting with to be able to make a firm conclusion. It goes back to that case study that was published where somebody was just recovering from a flu and decided that he wanted to do a full body BFR session and then had a, had a reaction and then continued to exercise and then presented next day in the emergency room with rhabdo. Yeah. Right. So it's like, it's, it's, it's all about taking these things into context and i uh i definitely am interested in that cell swelling aspect because but but i will say from a clinician perspective right that i don't necessarily know how many clinical scenarios that would actually be relevant for um because a lot of times not all you're gonna have individuals that are cleared to do some sort of isometric, right? Whether they're booted, like there was a recent study that you know they were booted, this is the beginning of it, but Larson in two years ago was doing uh, booted ankles and doing leg extensions and was well tolerated, didn't impact bone healing, et cetera. But there's very few situations where I would be like, we're gonna completely go passive and not have you do anything. So I think that that question to me is more of a mechanistic question. Does cell swelling have the capacity to, if, if in my model, it's mechanically tension, mechanical tension driven, 
does does the process of cell swelling increase mechanical tension without active muscle contraction? And there, there was a paper that was published in 2019 that as I was preparing my, my on-demand course, shameless plug, www.bfrtraining.com, um, that looked at the role of cell swelling and its impact on mechanical tension. And they were showing that cell swelling augments mechanical tension, transverse pressure at the muscle fiber level at longer lengths, but has no impact on shorter lengths. So my question would be, if, if this is, you know, mechanical tension is a driver, couldn't we do a control group that does nothing, cell swelling in the knee flex position if we're looking at the quads and cell swelling in the extended position if we're looking at the quads and seeing if there's any sort of preservation effect. Yeah, I think the other thing that this kind of stimulated this thought this is something, and I, I don't know, uh, it's just something I've been thinking about. Because um, what you said earlier, kind of with some of the people who are saying, we're only causing venous restriction and that's gonna be what's driving this response. I think I would say that I don't think we know why applying the cuff does anything, right? So for, for me, I've been kind of curious as to, is it related to how much blood flow is being reduced? Is it related to um, what happens from that? Or is it that plus or and or due to the pressure itself? Like, is there something about sensing pressure being applied to your limb? Um, or is it a combination of that plus, I, I don't know. Uh, but I've been curious about that, where it's like, when we apply a cuff, we have these things happen. Is that why we see these effects? Or, I mean, because it's hard to apply a cuff and not see those. So it's mm -hmm. it's hard to address that in a human. Uh, but I'm like, or is there something about just applying pressure? And then you you know that pressure is being applied to your limb. Does that in and of itself do something? I don't know. But that's that that goes to if you had the statistical power to be able to do this, where I would do, what I would do is you'd have, and again, very high sample size you're gonna need, but you'd have a, a regular doing, not, like doing a low load exercise, right? Then you'd have a, a sham 20 to 30 millimeters of mercury applied, and then you'd have a personalized pressure, right? So at least you're able to then see, is there any sort of difference and then moderating, you know, whatever outcome variables you're looking at, um, which again, that goes to, if we do, we do need a sham, right? In yeah. that type of design to be able to say, is there a role of actual just pressure? And then my, my then my mind goes to, well, what is the minimum pressure that we need? It's the same as the volume. It's, yeah. it's what is the minimum pressure that we need to meaningfully accelerate the fatiguing processes that are occurring at the muscle level to be able to maximize the therapeutic gains in muscle mass, muscle size, may or may not be different than the vascular adaptations. Or for me, I also think that there's a higher, there's a potentially a, a greater role for higher amounts of applied pressure if we're talking about exercise-induced analgesia. Um, but, but yeah, like these are all the kind of thought-provoking questions that, and part of the reason why I'm having this conversation is just to kind of stew over as we're trying to just understand more about this, you know, this, uh, this mode of exercise. Yeah. And one of the things that we're trying to do too, is coming up with ways where we move people away from failure, right? 
and then see how low can we go and and like where we start to really see the effects of BFR. Um, so I think we have some interesting data on that. Method's not perfect, but I think that, you know, one of the things I, I wanted to really test was I got very used to saying, you get the same adaptations, but you do less repetitions, right? And that was true. But it's also assuming that if if this group doing more repetitions were to do less, that they wouldn't see the same adaptation. So we've started to kind of move to, to testing that. And, and we do find that, yeah, when you start reducing this, depending on the variable you're looking at, blood flow restriction is having an effect, uh, which was good for me. I'm like, okay, okay, I haven't, I haven't lost my mind. Um, but I think that's something that we've been kind of experimenting with too, kind of same point. What's the least that we can do here? Um, and move people away from failure. Um, and apply blood flow restriction and compare it to people doing the same reps without it, because that's how you can test the effects of blood flow yeah. restriction. And it's really hard to set up study designs with blood flow restriction because um, you, you don't know when people are failing. So yeah. people are doing different proximities to failure, which is problematic. And to piggyback off this, and then we'll close off the podcast. Um, we do. So exactly that question that you just asked I'm interested in because in the clinical setting, we are are educated according to the the guidelines. You were on this paper, the the Patterson AL paper that's well cited, and the Lixandro paper, just showing that muscle mass and muscle strength tend to be, um, or muscle mass tends to be similar with BFR, muscle strength tends to be a little bit less uh, than heavy load strength training. But for me, I am very focused on the perceptual demands of discomfort that's experienced because I've myself, my patients or whatever. So I'm always looking for the minimum effective dose. So we actually have a paper that's in review right now. Um, but we published it as a preprint, which meta analyzed, I think we had 24 studies. And what we looked at is does the repetition scheme matter? when we apply blood flow restriction compared to the heavy load strength training group. And what we found was that the repetition scheme apparently doesn't really matter with whatever comparator that they're using. Now, again, it's not, it's not volume load matched. It's not, it was literally pure ecological validity of they decided to do, we separated into three different groups, the traditional failure repetition schemes, the uh, 30, 15, 15, 15, and three to four sets of 15. So multiple sets of 15. And we just meta-analyzed whatever their heavy load strength training comparator was. We found no difference. Um, so it looks like the, the barometer for volume, at least within our data set there, we probably only need three to four sets of 15 repetitions in order to get the same relative response in muscle growth of heavy load strength training. So, so like kind of what you were just literally just saying, like I've kind of been thinking about this as well, because I, 75 reps is a lot of repetitions. And when we think about translating something from the, the, the laboratory setting to a practical setting, I'm not having my patients do 75 reps of anything, much less adding blood flow restriction to them. But I have had my patients do three sets of 15. I've had, had, I have had my patients do four sets of 15, depending on the exercise. So this is now kind of 
shaping my own beliefs about the potential role of volume in even doing things like blood flow restriction. So, but, but interesting enough, just to cap off the last thing, we then subgrouped it according to the upper body and lower body. And it turns out that we have less, we have much less comparison comparisons in the upper body than the lower body, but it turns out that the upper body favored heavy load strength training in terms of muscle growth, but the lower body really didn't. And we don't know if that's a byproduct of the amount of studies that were just in, involved or, or not, or an actual effect, but it does go to kind of mirror and, and to be frank, bring our conversation full circle of what we were talking about before, which is what is the minimum effective volume that we need to have in order to gain a significant training effect and get people exercising and get people moving. Yeah. So is there any last thoughts, comments um, that you have on what you're, you know, you kind of touched upon what your lab is doing in the future. Um, it literally, this is just the last little bit for you to uh, give shout outs, whatever you have, uh, where people yeah. can contact you um, and, and whatnot. Yeah, you can contact me on Twitter. Um, I'm also on Instagram at JP Lenneke, L-O-E-N-N-E-K-E. -E. Um, if you, I'm not very good at Instagram. Um, Twitter, I'm better at, but I've kind of moved I don't spend as much time on there over the past few years as it's kind of <laughs> turned into the wild, wild west at, at certain points. Um, I'm, I'm either misremembering what it used to be like when I was in grad school or like I, it could just be that I'm misremembering it or I thought it was much better than it was. Uh, but it's it does it, it does feel different than it used to. Uh, but I, I still find that to be a, a useful avenue and you can contact me on there. Um, if you, if, if you don't care about blood flow restriction, please, you don't have to tell me, um, you can just not care about it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I always like to thank my students. Um, I've been so fortunate, uh, my entire time here to have really good students, uh, who are very curious, who work really, really, really hard all the time. Um, and that's still the same thing to, uh, right now. So, um, and yeah, I, you know, if you don't have that culture, if you don't have a good team around you, you know, you're going to be really limited on what you can do as as a professor. So um, I've been very fortunate to be able to keep bringing in good people who add to the culture. Um, so, you know, I, I think that um, all of the props go to them for sure. Um, but yeah, beyond that, um, any closing things? I just think um, blood flow restriction, there's always going to be some risk involved. The question is not whether there's a risk, whether it increases the risk um, compared to something else. And it, for most people, it doesn't appear to do that. Um, I think low loads, high loads, both induce growth to a point. Obviously, if you go low enough that they won't, but you know, the loads that most people use is going to be very similar. Strength, is best increased by lifting heavy weights. Um, and whether or not that strength is driven by muscle growth, I don't think there's any evidence for that whatsoever. Um, and there could be lots of reasons for that, but um, it just, the evidence doesn't exist. So why do people get stronger with blood flow restriction? I don't know. Um, I used to think it was muscle growth. I don't think that anymore. Um, at least not in the you know six to eight, 12 week studies that are done. 
Um, but there's no evidence that it plays a role beyond that, even though that's what people will, will, will select. Well, two years. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe at two years. I don't know. You're right. We don't know. Um, but the evidence that people always draw from is on the eight week studies, which, you know, doesn't appear to support that. But beyond that, those are my main, always my main uh, takeaways. I'll also close with this. I, I thought about this. Um, one of my former students who does, she actually moved away from kind of human data. She She's really interested in cancer cachexia. That's Brit, Dr. Brittany Counts. One of the things that she brought up last year, uh, because, you know, we have a tendency, um, we, I won't throw you in here. I'll, I'll, I'll just talk about myself is, you only focus on the variables that you uh, discuss, right? So I'll be like, you know, volume is not that important for, for these adaptations. And one of the comments that she brought up at uh, one of our conferences last year was, what adaptations, right? What are you measuring? Um, she goes, are, are, and she wasn't coming off as aggressively as I am telling the story, but it's like, you're talking about muscle growth and you're talking about strength, but there's lots of other things going on that you didn't measure. Um, and I think, our point still stands, uh, especially if you're doing three to four sets, but it's, it's still a good lesson uh, for me. Uh, Cause I was like, Oh, that's a good point. <laughs> right. There, there could be something where pressure does matter, or there could be something where volume does matter, but for the, for muscle growth and strength, probably not. Um, but I, I think that's a, that was a good lesson for me to, to hear that. Well, listen, this has been an amazing uh, over two hours now. So if you're still watching this or listening to this, uh, we did try to plan on going 90 minutes, but there's just so much to talk about. And we still didn't even hit on so many different areas. Um, but again, just wanted to say thank you again for your time. Uh, Jeremy, really appreciate it. And uh and yeah, hope to speak soon. You're always welcome back on the podcast to talk more about your work and the space. And uh, yeah, that's an episode, everyone. See Thanks you next for having time. me. Appreciate it. And that was today's episode of the BFR Better for Results podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, I would love if you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're watching or listening on. I really appreciate the support.